0: Congregation, your pastor has asked me if I would be willing to preach a catechism sermon, and then particularly Lord's Day 4. And so we come then to Lord's Day 4, as I would like to read for you, questions and answers 9, 10, and 11. Lord's Day 4, questions and answers 9, 10, and 11. Question number nine, but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man is unable to do? The answer, no. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question number 10. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity, having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Number 11. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but He is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty, be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. So far then, the teaching and our guide, the Heidelberg Catechism. Then we want to turn to God's holy word as we come to reading Psalm 90. We have sung of it already. But we want to read Psalm 90. The prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our life are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So far, the reading of this psalm, Psalm 90. Now, I want to focus particularly not only as we receive instructions from our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4, but also the words as we find in, in this psalm 90, the verses 7 and 8 of Psalm 90. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. So far then, the reading of God's holy word. And may the Lord also grant to each one of us that we may understand what his word is teaching us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. No doubt you will remember what Lord's Day 3 was all about. where We were shown that we cannot blame God for our sin. That time we confessed ourselves to be blameworthy, and it, it sets us guilty before the judge of heaven and earth. He has the right, you see, God has the right to judge us and deal with us, and that according to our justice, to His justice, rather. Now, the question is, and that is the question that we have to entertain this morning hour, how will we, you and I, fallen guilty sinners fare before God the Judge? How will we fare? It's a good question to ask, you see. According to our Heidelberg Catechism and with Lord's Day 4, it puts the justice of God, our judge, to the test to see if there is possibly any kind of escape for you and for me. Now, that is then also our theme For this hour, and that with the following points. And here's our theme. God's justice is put to the test to see if there is an escape from punishment. And then we have three questions that we need to entertain. Perhaps God is unfair with His justice. Secondly, perhaps God is not too strict in His wrath. And then thirdly, Perhaps God is soft in His mercy. Well, congregation, when you are in the courts of law, it is quite common to hear the cry somewhere in the audience, unfair, unfair. And you may hear this from the mouth of the criminal who has just been sentenced. According to a criminal... The sentence is always unfair and the punishment is always too severe for the crime that he or she has committed. And present-day criminal lawyers will also do their very best to make the judge appear to be as unfair as can be in his or her justice. Defense lawyers they will argue that their client, well, probably didn't know what he was doing when he committed his particular crime. When he was in the act, he probably wasn't in the right mind, you see. He was unable to control his actions. And so, the criminal defense lawyer will argue that this man should not receive any kind of punishment, but should simply be rehabilitated. That's probably much better, so a defense lawyer will say. Most of the judges in our land have actually bowed to such sentiments of today in terms of sense of justice. Most of the judges of our land do not want to be labeled as heartless, as unfair, or as unjust. So much, then, for the society and the justice in our postmodern society. But this should not surprise us, because this is, after all, how man thinks. Our catechism has understood this, and it lets us know by question number nine, how man will try to escape punishment. Man has his opinions ready, you see, about the judge of heaven and earth. Man actually dares to question God as to his qualifications as judge. Doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? Do you hear it? Man wants to test the justice of God. Isn't God perhaps somewhat unfair and a bit unjust? Isn't God perhaps unfair towards man? Now, the believer gives the answer, and each answer in our Heidelberg Catechism is an answer of the believer. We need to understand this. The believer gives an answer to this attack on God's justice and simply says, no, no. The believer, you see, takes it up and he takes it up against the suspicious thoughts of injustice and of unfairness. And he says, no, God does no injustice to man. God is not unfair. And my fellow believers, this must also be your and my confession The Bible itself speaks of this great truth in James 1 and verse 17 that there is no variation, there is no injustice with God. God does no injustice to man. It is against God's holy character, you see. It is one of His divine impossibilities, if you could say it that way. I know, I know that, there, that this answer is unacceptable to man. As it says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Man, you see, has a totally different idea about what is just and what is fair. Totally different idea about it. And you can see this in how criminals, for instance, are treated in the courts today, most often. If a criminal is thought not to know any better, or if he's thought to not have been in his right mind when he committed a particular crime, then the justice bends towards great leniency and says, well, let's not not punish him because it really isn't his fault. Let's be lenient. Let's try to rehabilitate him and give him a second chance. Recently, I read of a drunk driver who got off on a reduced charge, though he had killed a pedestrian, because, so I heard, he was too drunk to know what he was doing. Imagine he got off quite leniently. Dear people, such is not the justice of God. With God the excuse of, it's not really my fault, won't stick it won't stick why not because god and we know this boys girls young people we know this god once made man good and able to obey him perfectly loving god and loving the neighbor was as it were put into man's heart to do while in the garden of eden the divine gifts of obedience and love and commitment and communion with God, they came as a gift of life to Adam and Eve. And while in the Garden of Eden, this divine gift of obedience and love and communion, they, they were practiced to perfection. Man could then obey God's will in paradise It was no burden to man at all. In fact, it was man's great delight and his greatest pleasure. Communion with God was as close as the wind of the day. God created man with the ability of performing all the duties and all the privileges that were at hand for him. Man could image God Man could have dominion over the creation that God has shown him. He could show his wisdom. He could show his insight in naming all the animals. Imagine, boys and girls, Adam named all the animals. That's an elephant. That's a tiger. That's a kitty cat. Adam named them all. Adam could show and he had, that he had an eye for beauty and an eye for order when caring for the Garden of Eden. He could express his love to God as the voice of the Lord was always very near to him and very close to him. He could express the love for his neighbor when God gave him a helper comparable to him, his dear wife Eve. And whatever was the will of God, you see, man had the ability to do it. God required it from man as obedience, and man had the ability to do it all as his answer of love to God, his creator. Keeping the law, therefore, was no burden whatsoever, but it was an act of love at that time. And why should God now not require this from man any longer? Would God be unjust in requiring this of him? Should man really cry unfair, unfair because this is what God still asks of him? It is true, we know this, that man has robbed himself of these gifts when he stirred up by the devil, disobeyed God willfully. But that does not Cancel out God's requirements for us. God did not say to man after man fell, Well, I, I see you can't keep my law anymore, and so I will not require it of you anymore. God certainly did not say anything like that. God continued to demand that man love him and that man keeps his commandments the judges of our land would have said man is not able to do it anymore he doesn't know does not know any better and so therefore let us not require it of them him either that's a warped justice of the world but god's justice stays intact it remains Unmoved. What he once required, he will always require. Does God do injustice to man? No, so says our catechism. God is just, and for man there is no excuse possible. Well, no fault then can be found with the justice of God, can there? Therefore, let's put the, the wrath of God to the test and see if there is an escape from the wrath of God. And so, let's consider that in the second place. Perhaps God is not too strict in His wrath. The question is now raised. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? What is behind these words is the question of, How strict, really, is God in His wrath? How strict is He? The hope is, of course, that He's not that strict anymore in His wrath. The hope is that there is great slackness in His divine wrath and that that might prove yet to be an escape for man in terms of the punishment. The thinking behind this is that although God is just in His judgments, perhaps, perhaps He will be slack and not punished as He has threatened. But you know, this is a very weak argument. And at bottom, it's also a very sinful way of thinking. Here, God is compared to a man who will not keep His word. Man might threaten but will not necessarily carry out his threats. A father may warn his son, if you do this once more, I will have to punish you. But when Sonny Boy does it again, the father in a moment of weakness forgets the threat and the punishment is withheld. Our catechism asks, is God perhaps that way too? And then the believer in the catechism answers, certainly not. Certainly not. Dear people, God keeps his, to his word. He does not make any idle threats. If he once said, curse is the one who does not confirm all the words of His law, then He means it. And the curse does follow. Whoever has broken the law of God must know that God is terribly angry with such disobedience and with such rebellion. God is angry at that. And it is true, we, you and I, we have broken that law. When Adam and Eve broke that law in the Garden of Eden, in which our catechism calls the sins that we are born with. Everyone who is born into this world since Adam and Eve is born with that sin, which is sometimes called our original sin. And you and I, we must understand that God is terribly angry with your and my original sin. And this terrible anger began when that first act of sin was committed in the Garden of Eden, and it has continued to this very day, this very day. But more yet, more yet. God is also terribly angry with the sins that you and I do every day, even at this very moment. And they are called in our catechism, our actual sins. And how is God's displeasure revealed? It is revealed as he punishes such sins in this life, or as the catechism says, now, and when he punishes them in the life to come, that is, eternity. God is not like man. God keeps his word, also his threats of punishment. Dear people, it is, has to be said this hour. Our catechism deals with it. And the Bible does not hide it from us. God is terribly angry with the sins that you and I are born with, as well as with the sins that we still commit today. The people of Israel, they had to remember this solemn fact in their psalm singing. Psalm seventy, verse 7, verse 11, for instance, God is angry with the wicked every day. We may not therefore ignore this fact, and certainly we may not assume that it is not really all that bad, and that God might not necessarily punish our sins, because when we think that, we are deceiving ourselves. We would be like that fool standing on the railroad tracks, covering his eyes because there's a train coming, hoping that it'll just go away. The anger of God is a reality. We cannot ignore it. We cannot close our eyes to it. We can be upset to hear about it, and perhaps that is what is happening even now that we are upset to hear about those things. But the reality, dear people, remains. God's anger will not go away, even though we may have chosen to ignore it. Every believer must reckon with the fact that God is angry with his or her sins. And as certain as God was angry with the sins of His servant David, so certainly is God's anger raised through the sins that I commit. We've read from Psalm 90, haven't we? And there Moses laments the power of God's anger that is stirred by the sins of God's people. We've been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. If the anger of God is stirred by the sins of believers, what must be the severity of his anger be because of the sins of unbelievers? It is no wonder, therefore, that the Apostle Paul cried out at that very thought, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. God will punish by his just judgment both now and in eternity, as the Catechism tells us. Up till now, we know that God has greatly restrained his anger. But even now, the world is filled with much suffering. And also within that suffering, we see something of God's anger. We do. The anger of God, who can abide it in the day of its coming? At present, as I said already, the anger of God is still restrained. God is still very patient with this world that we live in today. But His patience whereby He still gives people bread and life and relief in suffering is in actual fact restrained anger. Therefore, we cannot yet fully understand how terrible the fury of God's anger can actually be. Someday, someday, all the restraints will be off and the anger of God will come upon us in full force. Then people who have ignored the anger of God or who have thought that it would never really come to them will pray as they have never prayed before. Mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come and who is able to stand. Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Dear people, do not think that anyone can escape thinking that somehow God will leave sins unpunished. Do not think that anyone can live a life of sin and never need to worry that they have to face the anger of God. Perhaps, perhaps there is someone listening who has already felt something of the anger of God. If so, remember, it is still only part of the anger of God that you are experiencing. But someday, it will be unleashed in its full fury. And then, where will you go? Or you say, you're you're just trying to scare me. Yes, I am. I am. If that is possible. And why? Because hell is real, my friend. It is real. Ah, you say, God will not send me to hell because he is love. Well, you are correct in this, that God is love. But the flip side of it, the flip side of love is anger. God is love, but if his love is spurned, his anger is stirred. So, our catechism asks, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not, answers the believer. And with this, another escape route is shut down, God is just and therefore will punish because He is angry at sin. Well now, let's put the mercy of God to the test, will we? Let's see if there is an escape possible from punishment. As we consider this in the third place, perhaps God is soft in His mercy. And for the third time, our catechism asks an escape-type question. But isn't God also merciful? And the believer answers, God is certainly merciful, but also just. Which means, so the believer continues to confess that God, in His justice, demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with supreme penalty eternal punishment of body and soul. Now here is a very profound thought. If you cannot confess that God is just and that He punishes sin, you will fail at the same time to understand the greatness of God's mercy. There are people, you see, who will only hear of God's mercy and have convinced themselves that the mercy of God will get them somehow through the judgments. At the same time, they do not want to think about the necessity for God to carry out His justice. Mercy is all that they think of. And since God is merciful, they do not want to talk about any judicial punishments. But they have then forgotten the words that God himself once spoke to Moses that the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but he by no means clears the guilty. Yes, God is merciful, but he's also just. And you see, dear people, these two go together. They are the two sides of one coin. When you hold up this coin before God in prayer, you must reckon with both sides of this coin. You can and you may show the side of mercy, but you must also at the same time acknowledge the side of justice. Only when you confess and can confess the justice of God, you will see something of the greatness of God's mercy that it opens up to you as well. At this point, dear people, I want to jump ahead. Through our catechism, I want to go ahead in our catechism for a minute because we may see indeed that justice and mercy can work together beautifully. But they can only work together beautifully in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. For God to be merciful to you and to me, His justice has to be satisfied, you see, and His anger has to be spent somehow. Well, this is what happened by way of God's plan of salvation. The justice of God, it fell on Jesus Christ. For him, the words of justice became a stark and stinging reality because in him sin was punished with supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. And this supreme, eternal punishment of body and soul was concentrated and compacted together, as it were, as Jesus Christ agonized on the cross of Golgotha in those frightful hours of darkness. Then the justice of God came down hard and heavy upon Him, and that with terrible anger. Then the fury of God's anger and the burning of God's wrath concentrated upon the body and the soul of Jesus the Savior until He expired, gave up His life for people who were in desperate need of mercy. God is merciful, but also just. And dear people, let us never talk about the mercy of God apart from His justice. Mercy only becomes mercy for me when I can see that the justice of God required that I be punished with eternal punishment of body and soul. And when I see the anger of God, that it is well-deserved because I have betrayed His love, that I have broken His law a thousand times, then I should be ready to confess I deserve the agony. I deserve the pain. I deserve the darkness. I deserve the forsakenness which Jesus Christ endured on the cross. Then I'm also ready to confess I deserve what He, Jesus Christ, has carried. And if God would have laid it on my shoulders, He would have been perfectly just. But now I may see that God has laid the punishment on Christ's shoulders. And now God is so just that He will not punish sin twice. There is no escaping from the judicial anger of God. It has to run its course. But Jesus Christ has taken it upon Himself. And you, my friend, believing in Him, you may go free. You may go free. Mercy may then be your life and it may be your salvation. Now, my friend, if you are not yet saved, remember the things that you heard in this message. They were hard things, weren't they? But remember these things. God is not unfair in His justice. God is not too strict in His anger. And therefore, I plead with you, cry out to him, O oh God, I deserve to be sent off to hell just as it would require it. But, but, but let mercy be my rescue. Dear people, our sin and misery can be absolved in the mercy of God, but only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And there, there is our comfort for both life and death, body and soul. Psalm 90, we go back to that for a moment, Psalm 90 confronts us with some very difficult issues, particularly as we see it in the middle of this psalm, such as the anger and the wrath of God and the brevity of our life. Just like what we have learned from Lord's Day 4, now, notice this. Just like the end of our catechism, you know the end of our catechism, thanksgiving. Psalm 90 also comes across positively and joyfully in the end, even with words of thanksgiving. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let your work, that is the work of Jesus Christ the Savior, appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Thanksgiving. Because God's justice has been poured upon Jesus Christ, whom I have entrusted my whole self to. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, it was not an easy word to preach, not an easy word to listen to, but may we respond with acknowledging that you are a righteous and a just God, but at the same time, very, very merciful And you have shown that in giving your beloved son, Jesus Christ, so that he could take the punishment for us, who we who deserve it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to take all that punishment, all that wrath, all that anger upon yourself. And you were able to carry it. And now we may rejoice in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that we may place our full trust in you so that we may have mercy in eternity. Be with us now as we leave the sanctuary, as we fellowship with one another and grant that our response to you may be. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this word. In Jesus' name, amen.